0: Welcome to the Center for Domestic Studies colloquium series podcast. Each episode of our colloquium series podcast features a member of the center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Thomas Harmon, assistant professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas, giving a talk entitled, Pleasant to Read Rather Than Potent to Persuade. St. Augustine on the platonic division between the few and the many. And without further ado, our podcast. Well,
1: thanks, thanks for coming, everyone. Um, um, this, um, the paper I'm going to read uh, is going to be uh, the, the bulk of a larger piece that I... Um, I'm going to be publishing in a new volume on Augustine's political thought um, next year. Um, so I'll give you pr- probably about half of the argument here. Um, and um, if you bug me uh, enough in the Q&A, you might get the rest of it. Um, so, uh, um, okay, let's, let's begin then. The, 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 the title here is The Few, the Many, and the Universal Way of Salvation, Augustine's Point of Engagement with Platonic Political Thought. Alright, so, as part of one of the most penetrating and insightful analyses of St. Augustine's reflection on politics in recent years, political philosopher Pierre Manot argues, Christianity's point of impact is the separation between the few and the many. What Christianity attacks is not social or political inequality, but the pertinence of the distinction between the few and the many, the philosopher and the non-philosopher, with regard to the capacity to attain or receive the truth. By the way, I have to apologize, I'm, I'm perpetually at the tail end of a cold this semester, so my voice is not what it should be, um, which unites me with St. Augustine. Um, uh, it is precisely on the basis of the capacity of the non-philosopher to attain or receive the truth that Augustine provides a, criti- a critique of porphyry in Book 10 of The City of God, saying that the eminent Platonist has not come across a universal way for the liberation of the soul which Porphyry, by the way, admits. Porphyry, of course, um, uh, part of the backstory of Porphyry that not many people know is he was kind of like the court intellectual of Diocletian. Okay? Um, uh, and so Eusebius also responded to uh, Porphyry, and um, in some ways, uh, Augustine's response to Porphyry is also uh, sort of a covert response to Eusebius as well. Okay? Um, instead, what Porphyry does... Uh, what what he does provide are two separate ways of purification, purgatio, that liberate the soul. One affecting the higher, or intellectual soul, intellectualum. One affecting only the lower, or spiritual soul, spiritualum, uh, through theurgy. The first way is for those few who are capable of philosophy. The second is for the multitude of men who, for whatever reason, are not capable of the philosophic life. Through his critique of Porphyry, on the basis of the concrete way of life lived by Christians, St. Augustine enters into a classic conversation, the boundaries and stakes of which had already been laid out. The classical political problem of the division between the few and the many is that for the city to be properly ordered in justice, it must be ruled by the wise and according to wisdom. But the wise are few, and outnumbered by the many, who are far too attached to To their own opinions and customs to allow the wise to rule, even if they could, A, identify the wise, (laughs) and B, persuade or coerce them to rule. A doubtful proposition in either case. Um, So this lamentable situation requires the wise to cultivate ironic distance from the multitude, most famously in the figure of Plato's Socrates. If the wise are to exert any influence on the city, it will have to be indirect and through the utilization of lies the most famous instance of which is the noble lie in Plato's Republic. Um, In the first part of this paper, um, which is the part I'm going to be giving today, um, I will chart out the argument between Augustine and Porphyry on the universal way of salvation, especially focusing on Augustine's theological argument that the resolution of the division of the few and the many rests on the mediation of the incarnate word in Christ. But the Christian way of life, based on the mediation of Christ, the incarnate word of God, does not make it so that, quote, political power and philosophy coincide in the same place, unquote, as Socrates puts it in Plato's Republic, in his discussion of the philosopher king. So Augustine is not arguing that Christians are de facto philosopher kings. Right? Um, that's probably the part of the argument that we're not going to get to, though. So, but you can bug me about it later. What this means for Augustine, as I will show in the second part, which we may not get, <laughs> um, is that Christianity is transpolitical. It issues forth in no laws or constitutions and demands the foundation or abolition of no particular regime or form of government. The good that Christians pursue transcends the good of the political order. Nevertheless, Augustine is at ma- pains to make clear that on the one hand, Christianity does not dissolve politics— And, on the other hand, faithful Christians can contribute positively to the legitimate political goals of the city, although he does not deny that Christianity makes impossible the perfervid attachment to one's own city that political men may regard as indispensable for the welfare of the city. You can think of Machiavelli's criticisms of Christianity here, and Rousseau's and Nietzsche's, Um, as well as Augustine's own interlocutors. Augustine seems to think that on balance, and given the other positive contributions Christians make to civic welfare, the potential risks Christianity might pose in directing citizens toward trans-political goods are risks statesmen ought to be willing to embrace. Okay, now, we have remarkably little in the way of Porphyry's writings that have survived. Porphyry was, of course, the editor of the Enneads of his teacher Plotinus. Yet, as Frederick van Flutteren argues, Porphyry's thought differs from what we find in the Enneads, at least in emphasis, Van Flutteren says. Van Flutteren has a discussion of the Porphyrian texts uh, we have as compared with what Augustine had available to him. And because of this limitation, I will not attempt here to give an interpretation of Porphyry himself. Uh, Our focus will be on Augustine. And what is important for our discussion here is not to understand Porphyry from his own writings, but to understand the way in which Augustine understands Porphyry. The first part of Augustine's City of God, which comprises books 1 through 10, is itself divided in two. Augustine dedicates books 1 through 5 to refuting those who worship false gods for the sake of temporal benefits. He dedicates books 6 through 10 to refuting those who worship false false gods for the sake of, quote, the future life after death. The second part of the City of God is dedicated to an examination of the origin, progress, and end of the City of God. Fittingly, Christ the Mediator provides the hinge between the two parts. Book 10 ends with Augustine speaking of Christ the Mediator, and Book 11 begins with Augustine speaking of Christ the Mediator. Porphyry occupies the pivotal place in the first part of the City of God, by way of contrast for Augustine, in his explication of Christ's mediation. The contrast is between the universal way of salvation provided through Christ's mediation and the bifurcated ways provided by Porphyry's recommendation of theurgy for the purgation of the spiritual soul to the non-philosopher on the one hand and his recommendation of the purgation of the intellect to those capable of philosophy on the other. Augustine's critique, however, is deeper than it first appears. It is true that he laments Porphyry's exclusion of the multitude from a fulsome salvation— But his critique does not admit that the only defect in Porphyry's bifurcatory remedies is that the multitude is left out. If that were so, then Augustine would be admitting that the philosopher is capable of salvation without the mediation of Christ. Only the multitude would stand in need of Christ's ministrations. That would leave things almost as they stand with Porphyry. The philosophers would take one way of salvation based on their intellectual capabilities, while the multitude would take another way that is opened up for them by Christ." The difference would be that, for Augustine and Christianity, both the few and the many could be saved. But there would remain two ways of salvation, one of which depends on Christ, and the other of which does not, um, rather than one universal way. Augustine's critique is not only that Porphyry excludes the multitude from salvation, but that the bifurcation of ways of salvation also excludes the philosopher from salvation. Augustine's critique of Porphyry appears in an extended section where Augustine is refuting those who, thinks that, who think that angels and demons ought to be worshipped. His basic argument is as follows. This will be a somewhat long quote, which I will then unpack. And Here's what he says. If an angel does not worship God, it is wretched, because deprived of God. If it worships God, it will not wish itself to be worshipped in the place of God. Um, I'm sorry, the longer quote will come later. Oh, that, that's the beginning. So now, uh, both angels and men ought to worship the one God who is the creator of all else. If an angel truly worships this true God, then he will not want to be worshipped in God's place. Any angel that seems to want to be worshipped in God's place is evil. (laughs) If an angel desires worship for himself in order to be a mediator between the human being offering worship and God, that angel is a deceiver. Mediation happens on the basis of commonality between the sides of the mediation. All the demon can claim is that it has a superior nature to man and by virtue of that superior nature, stands between man and God, and so can act as a proper mediator. But the angel or demon is not placed between men and God. On the contrary, demonic wickedness makes the demon inferior to the human being in a crucial respect. That is, wickedness. <laughs> Porphyry recommends commerce with demons or theurgy in his writings. The purpose of Porphyry's recommendation of theurgy, according to Augustine, is so that by means of certain theurgic consecrations, which are called telete, this spiritual element of the soul is put into a proper condition, capable of welcoming spirits and angels, and of seeing the gods. These practices will result in some sort of purification of the soul, quasi-purgationem anime. Augustine says quasi-purgationem because... The purgation offered by Porphyry would only be partial, limited to the lower soul. Augustine counters that. Porphyry admits at the same time that those theurgic rites do not affect any purification of the intellectual soul, which would fit it to see its God and to apprehend the true realities. From this, one can gather what kind of gods and what kind of vision he is talking about in those theurgic consecrations. It is not a vision of the true realities. In fact, He says that the rational soul, or as he prefers, the intellectual soul, can escape into its own sphere, even without any purification of the spiritual element by means of the theurgic theurgic art. And further, that the purification of the spiritual part by theurgy does not go so far as to assure its attainment of immortality and eternity. Okay, now Augustine's critique here is amazingly dense and requires a lot of unpacking. The full critique is actually present here in just a few lines. So first... Porphyry's theurgy offers only a partial purification of the spiritual or lower soul. The rational or intellectual soul, on the other hand, is capable of the contemplation of intelligible reality without any purification of the spiritual soul. The lower soul seems to be the sensitive soul, the seat of the senses, the imagination, the passions, and the emotions. The higher soul is the seat of the intellectual or rational power by which the mind can understand the truth. The division Augustine and Porphyry are talking about is the classic division in Plato expressed in the image of the divided line and the allegory of the cave. The operations of the lower soul take place below the divided line, and the operations of the intellectual soul take place above the divided line. To see what Augustine is talking about in his own idiom, it may be helpful to think back to Augustine's confessions. The most significant event in Augustine's, in young Augustine's time in Africa is his introduction to the pursuit of wisdom through Cicero's Hortensius. The Hortensius Augustine remarks using striking language, quote, changed my affections. It turned my prayers to you, Lord, and caused me to have different purposes and desires. All my vain hopes forthwith became worthless to me. And with incredible ardor of heart, I desired undying wisdom, unquote. Augustine's change of affections, however, did not issue directly into a life lived in philosophy. His affections may have been turned toward wisdom, but his mind was crude. Because of his intellectual crudity, he fell in with the Manichaeans, a sect that posited a good and an evil principle at war in the world. The Manichaeans provided Augustine with seeming wisdom in the form of a superficially satisfying answer to the problem of evil and a way to exonerate God from responsibility for evil in the world. There is a good God and an evil God. God, uh, good is the responsibility of the good God, and evil the responsibility of the evil God. Okay. Now it was in working through his dissatisfaction that Manichaeanism that Augustine was able eventually to determine the source of his intellectual problem. He laments, By what steps was I led down into the depths of hell, struggling and burning for want of the truth? For then I sought for you not according to intellectual understanding, or the really better translation would be the understanding of the mind, intellectum mentis by which you willed to raise me above beasts, but according to carnal sense, sensum carnes. We have no indication that Augustine undertook himself the Chaldean-inspired theurgical theurgical rites that Porphyry recommends, but the Manichaean rites he participated in and his crude sub-philosophic investigations as a young man seem to be similar to the theurgy Porphyry recommends, the search for God or gods to purify the lower soul to the neglect of the higher soul. Augustine's criticism of Porphyry is therefore grounded not only on philosophic and theological arguments, but has an urgency and familiarity for for Augustine based on his own personal experience. So there's a lot at stake for him. From the standpoint of the Platonic philosopher in Augustine, the drawbacks to theurgy and related pursuits are obvious. They do not accomplish what they promise. (laughs) What is sought is the liberation of the soul. What is delivered is nothing of the kind. Until Augustine has his intellectual conversion, in Book 7 of the, the Confessions, um, the various measures he takes in order to attain wisdom do not accomplish the task. He does not attain to God and truth. He only attains to uh, phantasms, phantasma, instead of God. But phantasms have no power to save in truth, although those who cannot distinguish between a phantasm and the true God, such as Augustine before his intellectual conversion might be deceived into thinking that they either are saved or on the way to being saved. In fact, falsity or deception is one of the main concerns of Augustine in Book 10 of the City of God, both the falsity of the philosopher who recommends theurgy and the falsity of the demons with whom the theurgist communicates. In fact, some version of the the verb follow occurs 29 times in Book 10, and some version of the occurs six times throughout Book 10. Augustine's concern with the deception of the multitude by statesmen and philosophers in matters of religion is an ongoing concern throughout the book. It is on this basis that he criticizes the civil theology of Rome earlier. He says that the civil theology, which finds its home in the rites of the temples, hides the truth that the natural theology of the philosophers uncovers, thereby preventing its adherents from knowing the truth in religion, and therefore barring access to any true deliverance or salvation." Now, these strategies are not new. In the Phaedo, which takes place dramatically in the shadow of Socrates' impending execution, Socrates' friends worry about what they will do in the absence of their wise friend. The dramatic movement of the dialogue makes it clear that Socrates' presence and teaching moderates their fear of death and hatred of argument, or misologia. Socrates' ministrations are described as incantations, which hold the fear of death and the hatred of arguments at bay. Only Socrates, the philosopher, the dialogue implies, is able to face up to the radical uncertainty of the individual's personal destiny beyond death. The many non-philosophers must be soothed by myths. Joseph Cropsey explains, quote, philosophy, the musical art, speaking with the voice of the poet Socrates, singing his swan song, thus relieves the pains of profoundest ignorance and of the fear of death, unquote. Through his incantations, Socrates seeks to impart some of his own serenity in the face of death to his friends, who are not philosophers. (laughs) But it is by no means clear that Socrates actually believes the content of the swan song. Cropsey, for instance, interprets two of Plato's signature teachings, the immortality of the soul and the intelligible forms, as poetic therapy for the many, given by Socrates, who, after all, claims in the Apology of Socrates that he is the city's greatest benefactor. In Porphyry's hands, theurgy is the Socratic swan song in a Neoplatonic key. The philosopher Socrates can lend his non-philosophic friends some of the serenity that he himself has in the face of death on the basis of his poetic philosophic incantation. Porphyry can likewise lend his non-philosophic associates some of his own philosophic serenity by soothing their fears through the therapeutic ministrations of theurgy. Um, of course, not 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 coincidentally, also um, removing some of the urgency um, that there is to listen to the Christian message of universal salvation. Okay. Um, just like Socrates, Porphyry also seems to hold out hope that through theurgy, the theurgist will have some kind of life after death. Augustine says Porphyry recommends us to cultivate the friendship of some demon, by whose assistance a man may be raised just a little above the earth after death, but. The strange way Augustine says Porphyry speaks of this existence after death ought to make us wonder about what he is saying. Later on, Augustine argues, While you, Porphyry, assert theurgy can purify the spiritual soul, that is, the part of the soul inferior to reason, you confess that theurgic art cannot make it immortal and eternal. In any case, needless to say, being raised a little above the earth after death falls well, short of the philosophic achievement Porphyry says Plotinus achieved four times during his life, and he himself once, namely, merging with the one. <laughs> Porphyry says, quote, there was shown to Plotinus the term ever near. For the term, the one end of his life, was to become unit, to approach to the god overall, And four times during the period I passed with him, he achieved this term by no mere latent fitness, but by the ineffable act. To this god I also declare, I, Porphyry, that in my 68th year, I too was once admitted and entered into union. This is a little different than being raised just a little bit above the earth. Um, There seems little doubt that Porphyry regards the true salvation of the soul to be in reach of the philosopher alone. The salvation of the soul able to be accomplished by theurgy is false. That is why Augustine says that the demons with whom the theurgists are encouraged to cultivate friendship are, quote, either identical with that being who is called the deceiver, or else they are nothing but a figment of the human imagination. Either the foolish theurgist is deceived by a demon or is saved only in his imagination. In either case, he is not truly saved. His fear of death may be soothed, but not on the basis of truth. He really ought still to be afraid. (laughs) Augustine addresses Porphyry directly, saying, You inveigle, seducis, those who are incapable of becoming philosophers, to indulge in practices which on your own showing are of no use to you, because you are capable of higher things. Thus, all who cannot approach to philosophic virtue a lofty ideal to which only a few can attain, have your authority to seek out theurgis. Uh, But Augustine's criticism does not end at expressing concern for the deception of the multitude. In the Confessions, he narrates that he himself was able to approach philosophic virtue, that, quote, lofty ideal to which only a few attain, Under the tutelage of the books of the Platonists, here is how he describes that ascent. Thus, I gradually passed from bodies to the soul, which perceives by means of the body, and thence to its interior powers, that's the lower soul, to which the bodily senses present exterior things. Beasts, too, are capable of doing this much. And thence to its interior power, to which what is apprehended by the bodily senses is referred for judgment. When this power found itself to be in me a variable thing, it raised itself up to its own understanding. It removed its thought from the tyranny of habit, and withdrew itself from the throngs of contradictory phantasms. In this way it might find that light by which it was sprinkled when it cried out, that beyond all doubt the immutable must be be preferred to the mutable. Hence it might come to know this immutable being, for unless it could know it in some way, it could in no wise have set it with certainty above the mutable. Thus, in a flash of its trembling sight, it came to that which is. Um, Id quad est is the Latin. Okay. This is the achievement at which Augustine has been aiming ever since his affections were turned toward wisdom by Cicero. It is a great achievement, and Augustine presents it as, as such. Even so... Augustine does not find the kind of satisfaction in it that he desired. He was incapable of sustaining the sight of id quod est. His philosophic achievement turns out to be an anti-climax. Augustine explains himself, saying, I was not steadfast in enjoyment of my God. I was born up to you by your beauty, but soon I was born down from you by my own weight, and with groaning I plunged into the midst of those lower things. This weight was carnal custom, consuetudo carnalis. Still, there remained within me remembrance of you. I did not doubt in any way that there was, there was one to cleave to, nor did I doubt that I was not yet one who would cleave uh, to him. For the corruptible body is a load upon the soul, and the earthly habitation presses down upon the mind that muses on many things. Augustine has not found at all that his rational soul, or as Porphyry prefers, intellectual soul, can escape into its own sphere, even without any purification of the spiritual element.
0: <clears throat>
1: the problem is that he cannot separate his mind from the rest of himself, and that the rest of himself is no less truly himself than his highest part. Salvation of the intellectual part, that does not provide salvation to the whole man, is doomed to be as unstable as his own abortive contemplation of id quod est under the tutelage of the books of the Platonists. Um, And I've got a little section in the full article where I argue that those books of the Platonists are primarily Porphyry's books. Um, The salvation of the intellectual part that does not provide salvation to the whole man. uh, I just said that, sorry. Um, That is why after Augustine's religious conversion, he and his mother Monica together ascend again to, quote, touch eternal wisdom which abides over all, unquote. (coughs) But that experience is quite different than his abortive neoplatonic ascent in book seven. Here's how he describes his ascent with Monica. And our conversation had brought us to this point, that any pleasure whatsoever of the bodily senses and any brightness whatsoever of corporeal light seemed to us not worthy of comparison with the pleasure of that eternal light, not worthy even of mention. Rising as our love flamed upwards toward that self-same, we passed in review the various levels of bodily things up to the heavens themselves, when sun and moon and stars shine upon this earth. And higher still we soared, thinking in our minds and speaking and marveling at your works. And so we came to our own souls and went beyond them, to come at last to that region of richness unending, where you feed Israel forever with the food of truth. And their life, and their life is that wisdom by which all things were made, both the things that have been and the things that are yet to be. So the first difference between the two accounts is that the first ascent in book seven is undertaken by Augustine alone. The second in book nine is undertaken with another, namely his mother, Monica. Monica's inclusion is significant for two reasons, both because the second ascent is done in conversation with another and because of the specific character of the other. Monica is unlettered. She has definitely not read the books of the Platonists. The first abortive ascent is like Porphyry's second way of salvation concerning the intellectual soul alone. The second ascent is accomplished in common between Monica and Augustine, who are the two types of person that Porphyry thought needed two different ways of salvation. The second ascent in the Confessions, therefore, exemplifies the universal way of salvation Augustine holds forth as possible on the basis of Christ's mediation. The most significant difference between the two ascents is the goal. In both cases, God is the goal, but in the first ascent, God is described as id quad est, a true but entirely impersonal description, suitable for the object of an ascent made purely on an intellectual plane. In the second ascent, God is addressed directly as you. (laughs) God is therefore drawn into Augustine and Monica's conversation, or rather, Augustine and Monica's conversation is founded on a God who can be addressed as a person. Third, in the first ascent, Augustine's senses are relevant only as a beginning. He ascends beyond them to a flash of mental sight. But in the second ascent, Augustine and Monica also attain to God, but the flash of the mind allows them not just to see, but to touch eternal wisdom. Sensory descriptions abound, as the final goal of their ascent is a region, quote, where you feed Israel forever with the food of truth, a reference to the sacrament of the Eucharist. Indeed, Augustine makes sure to mention that all five senses are involved in the attainment of the goal of ascent, reference to the humility of the word of God who condescends to subject himself to the human senses in the incarnation. At this point, it's possible to go back to Augustine's argument in The City of God, book 10. Augustine does not simply argue against the philosopher's exclusion of the multitude from genuine salvation. He argues that the philosopher cannot achieve the salvation of the soul even through the operation of his intellect. Augustine begins chapter 32 of book 10 by saying, This is the religion which contains the universal way for the liberation of the soul, since no soul can be freed by any other way. Augustine's clear implication is that while unbelieving philosophers may think they are freed, through philosophy they are themselves deceived, since no soul is freed except by Christ. The key to Augustine's argument is the universality of the way of salvation in Christianity. The two ways that Porphyry mentions are based on a division of men into two classes, Those who are capable of philosophy, who are few, and those who are not capable of philosophy, who are many. The philosopher is capable of living his life according to his higher soul, the intellectual soul, while the non-philosopher lives his life according to the lower, or spiritual soul. The philosopher is capable of conceiving immaterial substance, and therefore transcending the the world of sense impressions and phantasms. The non-philosopher is not. The fact of the matter is, however, that even though the non-philosopher lives according to his lower soul, that does not mean he has no intellect, only that he does not use it rightly. The fact that the philosopher is capable of using his intellect well and rightly regards it to be what is highest in him does not mean that his lower soul, or indeed even his body, is any less essentially constitutive of him him as a human person. Or indeed, um, uh, so Augustine presses his case, saying... Quote, for what is a universal way for the liberation of the soul if it is not a way by which all souls are liberated and therefore the only way for any soul? Okay. Christianity provides for the liberation of all souls and is the only way of liberation for any soul because it, quote, purifies the whole man, totum hominem, and p- prepares his mortal being for immortality in all the elements which constitute a man. Theurgy claims to purify only one part of a man, the spiritual soul, and therefore cannot claim really to liberate him in truth. Porphyry's philosophy claims to liberate the intellectual soul, which is also only part of a man, and therefore cannot claim to liberate him as a man in truth. The human person as human person involves body, lower soul, and higher soul. To neglect or excise one element is to be left with something that is not a man, not a human person. Augustine's and Christianity's emphasis on the resurrection of the body is therefore a strong affirmation of the personal significance of each man as a man, as a person. The fear of death is so strong among men because they are right to fear it. It involves the sundering of the man's constitutive parts, which is a great evil. The incantations of the philosophic swan song, either in its Socratic or in its porphyrian, theurgic manifestations, are essentially deceptive. Death, as Augustine knows... Uh, uh, and as St. Paul says, is the wages of sin. To die without the forgiveness of sin would be not only to die the death of separation of soul and body, but to die what Augustine calls the second death, the eternal separation of the soul from God. But St. Paul also says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Augustine therefore focuses on the gift of eternal life um, in Christ Jesus. And to see how uh, how it is that there can be a universal way of salvation that offers eternal life is necessary to examine the mediation of Christ more closely. But that's for the second part of the paper. Okay? Um, and so with that, um, I'd be happy to read my... No, it's, I actually don't have much of a conclusion here. <laughs> um, uh, but um, but in the rest of the paper, what I do is I, uh, I examine more closely what it is about Christ that actually provides for the grounding of a universal way of salvation. Okay? Um, and if you'd like, I'm, I'm probably close to the time that I should stop and take questions, so we'll leave the rest for later. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Center for Domestic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash tomisticstudies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at sttom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s.